0: I remember a number of years ago before I became an ordained
1: pastor I was sitting in on a session meeting an elder meeting at a church that I was interning at and we were Interviewing a missionary that we were hoping to begin supporting financially And when the missionary came in and sat down with the elders the first thing he said was listen guys There's three subjects. I don't want you to ask me any questions about my marriage my family or how the ministry's going <laughs> And we thought well Let's pray then and uh, be done. There's not much else to talk about here. And uh, afterwards, the senior pastor asked him why he had said that. And he said, it's because these are the most sensitive areas of my life and they're not going very well right now. And it's actually very common with missionaries that they don't really want you to ask them about those things. You know, that struck me. It's stuck with me. It's been almost 15 years now. I think he's right that those are the most sensitive areas of our lives. But I think we also have to ask ourselves a question and be honest with ourselves this morning. Is the gospel impacting those areas of our lives or not? And if it's not, that's probably an issue because those are the nuts and bolts of the Christian life. That's what Paul covers today. We're still working through the practical implications Of the good news of jesus paul laid that out for us in colossians 3 the first four verses And he says that we are united to jesus and the rest of colossians is really paul saying since we're united to jesus Here's how that should make a difference in the reality of your daily existence He tells us to put off the old self and put on the new self And now he applies that truth to the normal common areas of our lives to marriage to family and to work Really, Paul speaks to six different people groups here that undoubtedly encompass every single one of us here this morning. To wives and to husbands, to parents and to children, to employees and employers. And here's the thinking of the apostle. If it's true that we're we're so wrapped up in Jesus, that what is true of Jesus is true of us, if that's true... If our identity is so tied to and secured in Jesus, then it's going to show up in these parts of our lives. If what's true of Jesus is also true of us, then our most fundamental relationships and responsibilities are going to be impacted. And so right at the very beginning, I want you to ask yourself silently, how is the Holy Spirit leading me? How's the Holy Spirit right here, right now, because he's here right now, how is he leading me this morning to consider my life through the prism of these key relationships and responsibilities? And not to be too blunt, but here's a preview. If the gospel isn't impacting areas as basic as these, if the gospel isn't impacting areas as basic as these, we have little reason to believe that the gospel is impacting us at all. If your spouse doesn't see change in your life as a result of the gospel, if your children or your parents don't see change in your life as a result of the gospel, if co-workers or subordinates or bosses don't see change in your life as a result of the gospel, then guess what, friends? There's probably no change as a result of the gospel. Uh, Remember last week I talked about this combustion cycle that's at work in the life of a Christian's heart. The combustion cycle is the engine that drives change in our lives. And the combustion cycle is really two parts. It's faith and repentance. It's faith and repentance. And if those things are active in your heart, if they're active in your life, there's going to be change. There's going to be transformation over time. But if those things are not active in your heart on a daily, weekly basis, then change is going to be stifled. And so I want to summarize the main teaching points With that introduction in this way, the power of the gospel must affect our most important relationships and responsibilities if it's going to affect us at all. That's the key thing for you. And I think summarizing what Paul's teaching, the power of the gospel must affect our most important relationships and responsibilities if it's going to affect us at all. So let's look at three of those relationships, marriage, family, work. Okay, you ready? Because even if you're not, we're going. Catch up. Let's go. Here we go. Part one. Marriage. Marriage. That's what Paul talks about in verse 18 and verse 19. The gospel affects our marriages. If we're putting on the new clothes of our graciously gifted identity in Jesus, and if we're putting off our old selves, it will cumulatively change the way we interact in marriage. If we're living out our new identity in Jesus Christ as those who have died to sin and been raised with Christ, that's going to show up in our marriages in pronounced ways. Look at how Paul says it. Verse 18, he first addresses wives. He says, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, obviously, that command, submit, is a controversial one. Some of you probably bristle at hearing a white male talk to you about submitting. But we need to ask what it doesn't mean, and what it does mean to submit. Let me tell you this, ladies. Submission, listen, submission does not mean that the wife gets no say and that the wife gets no vote. It doesn't mean that the wife owes unconditional obedience to her husband. In fact, if your husband violates God's law, you're supposed to rebuke him and call him to repentance. Submission does not mean that the husband is in any way superior or that the wife is in any way inferior in worth, dignity, ability, or value. It does not mean that the gifts that you have, your skills, your intellect, your abilities, your gifts can't be used to better your own life and the life of your family. It doesn't mean any of those things to submit. What it does mean is to intentionally and consciously sacrifice your will and self-interest for the good of another. That's what it means to submit. To intentionally and self-consciously sacrifice your will and self-interest for the good of someone else, in this case, your husband. It means that when you get married, ladies, you're being called to give up your rights to ultimately make your own decisions. You're surrendering your independence. Your life is no longer a solo In marriage, it's always a duet. Paul says, submit to your husbands. And then he says to husbands, verse 19, love your wives. Love your wives and don't be harsh with them. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul fills out that command to husbands further. Love your wives. And the basic idea behind love is very similar, actually, to the basic idea behind submission. Love involves and requires self-sacrifice. The love of a husband for his wife is not a matter of saying I love you and then doing whatever you want, guys. It's a matter of placing her interests, needs, and priorities ahead of your own. Brian Chappell, uh, former president of Covenant Seminary, summarizes like this. He writes, Both loving and submission are not calls to be less than you are. They are calls to fully use your gifts, time, energy, etc. for the good of another not for self-glory. Paul adds here to husbands, verse 19, do not be harsh with them. I actually think that's a bad translation. I hate to do this, but a better translation is don't be irritated with them. Ouch. Don't be irritated with your wives. For you men who are husbands, when loving and leading your family and when loving and leading your wife is an irritant in your life, it probably will serve us well to remember that that irritation that we feel, it almost always stems from us resisting the God-given pruning effect that our spouses have on us. Usually we're irritated because our wife serves as the main instrument of our own sanctification. And guess what? Pruning is not a pleasant image. You ever seen a gardener prune a rose bush I used to watch my mom prune bushes in her garden in my backyard when I was a kid. And I would think, Mom, you're going to kill that thing. You're taking off everything. That's what pruning feels like. And oftentimes, men who are husbands experience the necessary God-given pruning via your marriage. And our irritation typically stems from resistance to that. God has called your wife to be an instrument of sanctification in your life. She's one of the main ways that God is going to rid you of your own self-will and rid you of your own self-centeredness. Paul's teaching us here that the wife is to give herself up for her husband. The husband is to give up himself for the wife because Jesus gave himself up for us. So here's a primary piece of application that probably none of us want to hear. But that's why it's in the Bible. It's not because we want to hear it. It's because we need to hear it. The biggest problem in your marriage and the biggest problem in every marriage is the problem of your own self-centeredness. To put that slightly differently, our biggest problem in marriage is that we fail to see that we are our biggest problem in marriage. Your biggest problem is that you fail to see that you're your biggest problem. So you're not putting on your new identity when you refuse to acknowledge Your own sinful contributions to problems in marriage. And when you believe that the problems stem only from your spouse. Paul Tripp was one of my seminary professors. And he tells a story in his book on marriage. About he and his wife Luella. When they were very early in their marriage. He was a pastor of a local church. And they were in the middle of a big argument and fight in their kitchen. And at one point Paul Tripp screamed out to his wife. 99% of the women in my church would love to be married to me. Now time out here. Time out. Guys, bad move. (laughs) Bad move. Don't go there. 99% of the women in our church would love to be married to me. And guess what Luella said? Guess what, Paul? I'm in the 1%. I'm in the 1%. The biggest problem in your marriage is you. When the gospel gospel combustion cycle is at work in the hearts of a husband and wife, there's going to be, over time, An increasing proclivity towards repentance. An increasing proclivity towards acknowledging our sinful contributions to the relationship. And an increasing proclivity towards trusting the finished work of Jesus Christ in our marriages together. You know, couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. And guess what? Guess what? The most powerful evangelistic tool in the universe... For our children is seen in mom and dad's relationship with each other and with the Lord. Your marriage is the first model your children have of what Christianity really is and if there's any real power that there. And that leads us to the second set of relationships in which the gospel must impact us. It should impact our marriages over time through repentance and faith, and it should impact our families. Look at verse 20, verse 21. First, Paul speaks to children. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, just think about that for a minute. The fact that Paul addresses children at all in first century Roman Empire culture is unbelievable. The fact that Paul assumes here that children, as members of the church in their own right, have responsibilities and rights is the gospel breaking new ground socially. That was a massive leap forward in human rights in the ancient world. Children are to be valued. And the actions of children have responsibility. They have moral agency. And what does Paul tell them? He says, children, the command is to obey. Obey. The main way children who are living under the roof of their parents show that they believe the gospel and show that they love Jesus and are growing is through obedience to their parents. Okay, kids, I want you to listen. Okay, I want you to listen to me. That's hard. That's hard. It's hard for teenagers. It's hard for elementary school kids. It's hard for toddlers. It's hard for these babies, I'm sure. I don't know how, but it's hard. Okay, it's hard, Um, but it's incredibly important, kids. Why is it important? Look at what the Bible says. Paul says, obey your parents because this pleases who? The Lord. It pleases the Lord. The main way you kids honor your Lord, Jesus, is by honoring your parents. The main way a child obeys Jesus is by obeying his mom and his dad. So kids, listen to me. You do not obey your parents because your parents are your Lord. Your parents aren't your Lord. You obey your parents Because Jesus is your Lord. You don't obey your parents because your parents are ultimately in charge. You obey your parents because Jesus is ultimately in charge of you and your parents. And listen, kids, I know, and your parents know, if I can be so bold as to speak for your parents, that it's hard to obey sinful people. Your parents are sinful. I know I can say that. And they don't parent you perfectly, not even close, but they do love you. They do want what is best for you, and they are worth trusting. The world tells you that's not true. There's immense pressure on children in our society to believe that you can and should go your own way and carve your own path. And that's all over our pop culture. Remember The Little Mermaid? It's a terrible movie. (laughs) The Little Mermaid is terrible. It's the worst of all Disney's movies. And because this is a 16-year-old girl that is just blatantly disobeying her dad. Her dad says, don't go up to the surface and have contact with those humans. They're fish eaters, right? And Ariel says, forget you, dad. I'm carving my own path. I'm going my own way. I know everything. I'm going to do it. And guess what? In The Little Mermaid, this is why this movie stinks. It all turns out great for Ariel. And that is, friends, not true. It's not true. When you careen your car over the God-given Uh, The god-given barriers that are intended to serve you and protect you it's not going to go well When you disobey your parents when you ignore their instruction when you dishonor them God is displeased with you and you are putting yourself in danger That's why paul says in ephesians that this commandment to obey your parents is the first commandment with a promise It will go well for you and you will live long in the land if you obey So maybe, kids, the Holy Spirit is right now, this morning, calling you to repent to your parents for disobeying them and for dishonoring them. Maybe he's calling you to trust in Jesus Christ by loving and obeying your parents, not because they're perfect, because they're not, and not because they're always worthy of your love, because they're not, but because Jesus is always worthy of your love. Children, obey your parents. If the gospel is having any impact in your life, kids, that's going to be showing up more and more. Secondly, Paul says... Fathers. Verse 21, do not provoke your children unless they become discouraged. Now, that word for fathers could mean both mom and dad, but it likely, well, it certainly is prioritizing the role of the dad. So he speaks to fathers, don't provoke your children. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to provoke your kids? Well, here's what it means to provoke it means to discourage them to the point of their losing motivation to discourage them to the point of their losing motivation. Don't discourage your kids, Paul says. How do we do this as dads? Well, you do it when you expect from your children the very things that make you proud of yourself. When you expect from your children the very things that make you proud of yourself. When I was your age, here's what I used to do. Stop doing that, Dad. That's foolish. Bruce Springsteen's one of my favorite musicians, and Throughout all of his songs, is his relationship with his father. And in his autobiography that he just came out with a couple of years ago called Born to Run, he writes When my dad looked at me, he didn't see what he needed to see. This was my crime. He's got a lot of songs about his relationship with his dad, who was always really hard on him. One is called Independence Day. I don't have the lyrics up there because I want to sing it for you. Not really. Not going to sing it. But I'm going to read this. Here's what he writes. Well, Papa, go to bed now because it's getting late. Nothing we can say is going to change anything now. I'll be leaving in the morning from St. Mary's Gate. We wouldn't change this thing even if we could somehow because the darkness of this house has got the best of us. There's a darkness in the town that's got us too. So say goodbye. It's Independence Day. What are we teaching our children when we do this? We're teaching them that what matters most is the honor of our family's name. And not the honor of Jesus' name. Another way you discourage your kids, dads, is when we demand a level of commitment and holiness of them that we've never demanded of ourselves. It's really easy to be a hypocrite as a dad. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, was a ba- he abandoned the faith for a time because of this. He says that the worst thing is not to have a completely pagan parent The worst thing is to have a parent who professes the faith but doesn't really believe it. How do you avoid that as a dad? How do you avoid that as a parent? How practically, dads, can we grow in grace? Well, we let the combustion cycle of the gospel work in our hearts, in front of, and in relationship with our kids. Confess your sin to them. Repent to them. And trust in Jesus for your own forgiveness in front of them. Nothing can be more powerful than that, you see. That's when our children see that this Christianity thing isn't just a crock, but that it's real. If the gospel's having any impact, it's going to have an impact in your marriage. That's not to say you're going to have a perfect marriage tomorrow, but over time there will be change. If the gospel's having any impact, it's going to have an impact in your family, the way children and parents relate to one another. That's not to say that you're going to have perfectly obedient children tomorrow and that you're going to be a perfect mom or dad tomorrow, but it is to say that over time, the Holy Spirit changes us. Lastly, if the gospel is affecting us at all, it's going to affect us at home and it's going to affect us at work. That's really what verses 22 through 4, 1 are about. What's the main way the gospel affects us at work? I love these verses because it's really clear here. The main way the gospel affects us at work is when we work hard and honestly, because our real boss, our real master, is Jesus. Look at verse 22. He says, we work not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing who? The Lord. Fearing the Lord. 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that the Lord or excuse me, that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. Two comments about this before we wrap up. First, these verses make it really clear. They make it really clear, as does so much of the Bible, that in whatever area of work or vocation God has called you, he cares about what you are doing. Your faith makes a massive difference in what you do for the vast majority of your weeks. The vast majority of your waking hours. Uh, Dorothy Sayers has written a beautiful little essay called Why Work? I've quoted this before, but I think this is about as best as I've ever heard it. Listen to what she says. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach... To an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. What does that mean? It means that the gospel changes your work life. You work well and you work hard because the gospel is true. Jesus is Lord. So work as to please your true king. Practically, What does that mean? Here's what it means. God is pleased when you physicians practice medicine with excellence and advance new research and treat patients with competence and care. God's pleased when you teachers convey to your students truth and beauty and that your students' horizons are expanded. God is pleased when garbage men pick up the trash efficiently and contribute to the good and to a good and healthy community. God's pleased when soldiers obey their commanders and work to protect and serve their nation. God is pleased when attorneys promote a just and fair society, either by defending the accused or prosecuting the guilty. God is pleased when a Starbucks barista serves each customer kindly and with patience and makes, you know, kind of decent coffee. God's pleased when Uh, people in the financial sector seek to raise the value of the company for shareholders while contributing to a flourishing society. God is pleased when stay-at-home moms love their children and care for the needs of a family with industry and diligence and joy. Paul tells us, verse 17, whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you notice that in all these commands, the one name we see the most is the Lord. In the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. The Lord is everywhere in these because the Lord cares about the intimate details and relationships and responsibilities of the lives of his people. Second observation. Because of the gospel's impact in your life, you can be freed both from overwork and from underwork. Think about that. The main reason you work is because you believe what God has done for you in Jesus. And so everything else in your life is like one big thank you note to God. So believing the gospel frees you from overworking. It frees you from being a workaholic. It frees you from having all of your needs and desires met by your own work. Um, Because Jesus has met your needs at the cross. It frees you from wrapping up your identity and your employment status or in what you do all the time during the week because your status rests in Christ. But the gospel also frees you from underwork. It frees you from laziness because you believe that Jesus is honored when you serve him in every area of your life and you're no longer obsessed with having your own needs met and fulfilled by the needs of others, but the needs of others. So the gospel frees you to work hard for God's glory, and it frees you from working hard for your own glory. The point, again, friends, is that if the gospel is having any impact in your life at all, it's going to show itself up in these primary relationships and responsibilities. If the combustion cycle is at work, remember what Luther said, the main thing in a Christian's life should be daily repentance. If that's happening, more and more by the grace of Jesus Christ in your hearts, if you're embracing more and more who you already are in Jesus, if you know that deep down your identity doesn't depend on how good you're doing in all these aspects of your life, but your identity depends on Jesus' great goodness for you, given freely in grace. If you know that, then there's going to be change. Now listen, I'm sure, I hope actually, I hope that as we hear this sermon we all think, gosh, I sorry, a stink. I almost said it. A stink. That all this. What a wretched failure. That's why we need to come to this table in just a minute and know that Jesus is for us, that Jesus meets us where we are, and that Jesus' spirit is actually right now at work, convicting us of sin, that we might turn away from it and look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm going to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis, because that's always a good way to close a sermon, I think. Um, in his chapter called Let's Pretend in Mere Christianity, Lewis uh, summarizes, I think, the point of this sermon very well. Uh, listen, here's what Lewis writes. Put right out of your head that Christianity is about reading what Christ said and trying to carry it out, as a man may read what Plato or Marx said and try to carry it out. Christianity means something much more than that. It means that a real person, Christ, here and now, is doing things to you. It's not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It is a living man, still as much a man as you, and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has. At first, only for moments. Then, for longer periods. Finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing. Into a new little Christ. A being which, in its own small way, has the same kind of life as God. Which shares in his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity. And soon we make two other discoveries. We begin to notice our sinfulness. We begin to be alarmed Not only about what we do, but about what we are. And second, we begin to notice that, of course, it is God who does everything. Let's pray.